Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist, physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Lovely to be with you again, Sharon, and particularly in what is what feels like a new era in Australian politics and policy. How did you reflect on last week's episode? Look, it it really does feel like an exciting moment in history, doesn't it, Anna Greta? Not just because of the fabulous podcast we had last week, but <laughs> because we do feel as though we're entering into a new era of politics in, Austra- in Australia. Um, and of course, last week we had Alfredo Said Filio on the show, and he was talking about the ways in which we need to move away from the dominant neoliberal paradigm and the ways in which we need to embrace the politics of of hope and humanity. And this week, Anna Greta, it feels as though maybe we have the political space to do that. Absolutely. In, in my moments of hope, I can see that what we're offering in the Australian political landscape to the rest of the world is an antidote, perhaps, to some of the authoritarianism and, and a population-driven uh, democratically focused election result is quite an extraordinary thing. But, but perhaps you'd like to introduce our, our discussion for today, Sharon. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, last week, kind of Greta, the conversation was was in many ways quite theoretical, but it does have some some really practical connections to mm. what we're we're talking about today. Um, Alfredo talked about collective action, and in many ways, we saw that through the vote last week. And of course, as I think everyone listening knows, last Saturday, Australia elected a new government emphatically voting out the Liberal National Coalition that had been in power for for almost a decade, since 2013, and I think too rejecting the politics of division um, that we have seen playing out in this country for, for, for more than a decade now. In his victory speech, new Prime Minister Anthony Albanese highlighted a number of policy changes, including a commitment to the Uluru Statement of the Heart in full and an end to the climate wars. And these are some of the things on which we have had so much division. But how should the new government go about pursuing its vision of no one left behind and no one held back? How can it build trust in the Australian community and what challenges might it face in pursuing its policy and legislative agenda? To discuss these issues, we have two world-class guests on the show today, two Crawford and ANU superstars. Anna Greta, would you like to do the introductions? 
I'm so excited to have these two women with us today. Uh, Helen Sullivan is Professor of Public Policy and Dean of the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Helen was most recently the Director of the Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU. Her research explores the changing nature of state-society relationships in the context of collaboration, urban politics and public policy and service reform. Helen has a long-term commitment to bridge the gap between research and policy, and in 2016, she was made a National Fellow of the Institute of Public Administration Australia in recognition of her significant contribution to public administration. Welcome back, Helen. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Anna Grasser. And Sarah Bice. Sarah is the Foundation Director of the Institute for Infrastructure in Society, and she's also a professor here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. She's Director of the Policy and Governance Program at the Crawford School, and she's been the Vice-Chancellor's Futures Scheme Senior Fellow for her work on the Next Generation Engagement Program, which is Australia's largest study into community engagement in infrastructure. Sarah's research agenda is deeply engaged with industry and government, focusing on the intersection of corporations, communities and governments as they negotiate the impacts of major projects. She is currently the guest editor of Policy Forum's new feature section, In Focus, Australia's Policy Future, and it's great to have her with us today. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So, Helen and Sarah, in the in the lead up to, to the recent election, there was a lot of discussion about this being a particularly important election, you know, that was going to shape the future of Australia. And we certainly saw some some stunning results. But can we begin with just getting your first impressions of that election result and your reflections on what that might mean from a public policy perspective? Um, Helen, perhaps we could start with you. Uh, yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, so, I mean, this is going to sound terribly trite, probably, and, and a bit naive, but um, you know, the, the most profound sense that I had um, watching the election coverage, and I watched all of it, was just that this was an occasion when democracy won, that, um, you know, in and amongst all of the toing and froing and Anthony Green not quite knowing what was what was happening, which was interesting in and of itself. That it, just for me, it was a sense that this was an occasion where in the election, democracy and the power of the way in which the Australian system works um, showed that uh, people's voices that had previously been marginalised or just completely ignored or taken for granted um, could actually find a find a platform and find a very effective platform so so for me that was the that was and remains the the big takeaway and um i have to say it was uh, just an extraordinary thing to watch um and to listen to various experts including people from the ANU trying to make sense of what was going on um but i think it's a it's a really great result in the sense that it 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 demonstrates that elections are about the people. They're not about politicians and slogans and trying to be overly clever and trying to manipulate things. They are and can be um, about local people deciding for themselves what matters and, and having that reflected uh, in an, an, an election result. And I think it's one of those occasions where, um, you know, the, the people are really leading um, what it is that uh, uh, the the government the government's agenda is going to look like? Because uh, we've decided that there are some things that really are just too important to leave just to politicians. 
And Helen, I, th- I think that is a, a really exciting outcome, you know, that triumph of democracy and the engagement that we saw of people around the country in the, the election and, and in the decisions. Do you think this is going to change things from a public policy perspective? Do you think this will mean that people feel increasingly enthusiastic about being engaged in in policy debates and continuing to want to have a say in the direction of the country? Absolutely. I think the, um, the I think you know the last decade or so that since certainly since I've been in Australia, there, there's been a clear sense that people want to be engaged in policy conversations, but um, they also want to be treated like grown ups. You know, they don't want to be talked down to or um, considered naive or whatever it is that. Uh, you know, various political machines have decided is is the way in which they're going to engage. So this does seem to me to be to have the possibility of a moment where public policy, and this is partly as a result of you know what happened through COVID. We've all realised that public policy settings really, really matter. That government really, really matters. Um, and this election, I think, really gave political parties the strong signal that their electorate wants to be engaged in pathways forward, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on First Nations, whether it's on um, how we understand uh, what it means to to work and and live in a um, a, a supportive and secure environment, um, whether it it means, um, you know, how we understand our place in the region. All of these are things that uh, the people, uh, all of us in various ways, have now made it very clear that that we have views, we have informed views, and that we want to be part of that process of making policy. I have to say, it is a wonderful thing to start a podcast discussion with this sense of optimism. You know, that, that has been lacking of late as we've discussed some of the challenges. So this is a, a really fabulous shift that I'm feeling in the, the tone of this conversation. But Sarah, can, can I invite you in now? What were your impressions of, of both the election result and then what that means for public policy? Thanks, Sharon. I really agree with Helen and I agree with your comments. This is a time for optimism. I think that, you know, collectively the results show that the Australian public were waiting for a sense of change and a sense of relief. In the past two and a half years, we've had plague, disaster, uncertainty. And for me, the election result is very much about the Australian public having um, what recently has been a very rare opportunity to exercise some control and to seek some certainty. There is no ambivalence in this shift. What we are seeing is an Australian public that's saying we do want climate action. We do want greater attention to social equity, including gender equity and pay parity. We do want to see the major party system Questioned. We want an opportunity as an Australian public to have representatives who are going to take up the issues that are most important to the public. So I think if we look back on the past two and a half years and the number of existential and enormous threats that people have faced, the levels of uncertainty that they've gone through, for me, this election result is very much about Australians exercising an opportunity to have some certainty to have some voice and to start to shape a future that really suits where they think the country should be going. So I also see a lot of optimism here. 
It is quite a remarkable place. I can't remember the last time we started a podcast with with such an extraordinary shift in framework towards uh, real hope for the future. And I'm thinking particularly about climate change, perhaps, as a, a thing that we could focus in on now. We've already seen a seismic shift in the language, the description that our new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, made at the, at the leading of the Quad, at the meeting of the Quad recently, that climate change is the most significant security and economic threat that's faced by Australia. We're seeing a seismic shift in language and recognition of the central challenge. Sarah, in a piece you wrote just recently for Policy Forum, you said that much of the result of the election will hinge on the answer to the one question, whether climate change has finally shifted to the centre of Australian politics. Do you think that this has turned out to be the case? I hope undoubtedly it is. So I'm going to ride that wave of optimism and really hope, Arna Greta, that it is the case. I'm with you. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My fingers are crossed that this isn't just a blip in the, you know, domestic policy kind of settings. The actions of the teal wave and the ways in which Climate 200 backed independence have not only put up incredible challenges and really put throughout their campaigns climate change directly onto the public agenda, but also the results that we're seeing in terms of those who have been elected. And here in Victoria, uh, Kuyong is an obvious example, but also the long-standing Liberal seat uh, of Goldstein down at the Bayside where Zoe Daniel has been voted in. We can see that people really are getting behind climate action. And I think that's the other thing that's been very interesting. You mentioned language before and that shifting language. Uh, we have seen a shift towards not just climate change mitigation or addressing climate change, but a discourse of climate action. So there is very much a sense that we have no more time to wait. I think that experiences like the floods and fires of recent times have really put, uh, for better or for worse, climate action to the fore because people are seeing how this is affecting us in our daily lives. And we knew previously from work that has been done around public perceptions of climate change that the majority of Australian voters do agree that global warming is a serious and pressing problem. But this is the first time that we have seen an election result that reflects those sentiments. And so for me, I do think this is, I hope, a seismic shift towards climate action. Uh, and it may have finally given us the result that we first thought we might see in 2019. Absolutely. So I, the way I've been thinking is that I'm hopeful that the, the independence and the greens that our crossbench allows a, a buffer zone to see definitive change in terms of the way that we contend with both climate adaptation and mitigation. And certainly the language coming from the new government is a seismic shift. Anthony Albanese has already indicated that he wants to end the climate wars. But we have seen threats to this this approach in the past. Of course, in the Rudd era, uh, the concerted campaign by the Minerals Council and the opposition and others uh, affected the, the, the results of the carbon pollution reduction scheme. Will this time be different or do we think that we'll still see significant attacks to effective climate action? What do you think, Sarah? I think you're always going to see attacks to climate action where there are major industries that are going to be lobbying to uh, protect their own interests. That's not going away. Um, not to veer too far off topic, but just today um, and devastatingly, there was another mass shooting at a primary school in the United States. And, you know, it's just another example of a policy space where 
tragedy can happen again and again, and the issues are so obviously in front of you, but you have industry lobbies that are just inexplicably strong that prevent policy change. And so, you know, we have similarly solid, long-standing and incredibly culturally important industries here in Australia for many, many decades and even, you know, over a century now, we've had a resources industry that has been the backbone of the Australian economy. We still have a large number of Australian communities that identify as mining communities. And what we're seeing over recent years have been identity shifts. So places like Newcastle really starting to move towards environmental sustainability, looking at transitions away from coal mining. But you're going to have those industries. They are going to stay strong. They are going to continue to lobby. What we have to hope is that we now have a clear political mandate, not only of the ALP, but through the independents and through the Greens, and that their policy interests relative to climate action are well aligned enough that we can see change. And we can also see these politicians take a stand to be strong against any lobbying, to be strong on the future direction of Australia in relation to its environmental sustainability, to the transition to renewable energy in a fair and just way. The possibility is there. The settings are right. We now need our politicians who've been unambiguously put into office uh, to stand up for what we've asked for. Helen, I would love your thoughts on on whether the climate wars are over and whether we're likely to see really effective policy change in climate in the climate change sphere. What do you think? I think the climate wars uh, we're probably in the you know in the last few skirmishes, and there'll be um, you know I think that Sarah's right. There'll be a a pretty powerful reaction from um, people who are and industries and organisations and lobby groups who um, you know are very concerned about. Um, the the potential for policy to shift. I think what is important, though, in addition to, to all of the things that, that Sarah's mentioned, is that the way in which the conversation has been framed is now changing. And, and it, it's really important, you know, when we think about what drives public policy, how public policy, you know, becomes something that is contested or not, so much of it is about the way in which policy questions, policy issues are framed. Um, and, you know, Australia ended up in a, in a situation over climate um, that, as you say, you know, is, is accurately described as, as the climate wars because of some incredibly clever early framing that created division where there didn't need to be division. So, you know, this is not to say that um, there are not communities who are heavily reliant on a particular industry who will will still have very legitimate concerns. But it is to say that the framing of the discussion, which was always about making those people afraid of what might happen if we took action on climate and encouraging media representations of uh, climate action as as being um, reckless as being left wing as being all of those things that um, you know work very very well in in sound bites you know those things created an environment a policy environment in which it was not possible to have um, a discussion that was essentially based on data and evidence and I think that 
is where politically, as well as in policy terms, we now have an opportunity to do things differently. But it is reliant. It's really incumbent upon the Labour Party, who will be um, the, the the party of government, um, or and you know they'll be pushed all the way, absolutely, by uh, the Independents and the Greens. But it is really incumbent upon them to frame the discussion in a way that does allow for taking account of people's genuine concerns about their livelihoods, about questions of cost of living, about um, how we understand our place in the region, as well as uh, it being a response to, to climate. So I think this is something that um, the narrative is really, really important, but the narrative has to be supported by a range of policies that do speak to uh, what the prime minister was referring to, that you know, climate change is about economic security, it's about national security, it's about future security. Um, and, and so we need a, a policy um, envelope, if you like, that, that, that is able to hold those things and then able to um, engage with communities of all kinds um, so that you can have a conversation that is more evidence-based and not simply um, just based on trying to combat, you know, the latest scare campaign from the media. The media of which I, I have to say, um, again, going a wee bit off topic, but not too much, you know, the day after the election, the Sun newspaper in the United Kingdom had an extraordinary headline, which of course is a, is a Murdoch newspaper, extraordinary headline talking about left-wing um, leader uh, taking power in Australia. And it was just so much of that old, those old tropes that we've seen. But what was interesting was just how... Um, how arcane it looked, how um, anachronistic. And that, I think, is really, really important, that that uh, we do have narratives that are now different about how we view climate. I think just coming in on Helen's points, we do have an opportunity now to enter into what I hope will be a virtuous cycle of increased public debate and or public discussion around what we do in terms of climate action uh, and more acceptance and then policy action. So if we look, for instance, at some recent studies from the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, they've found that the more that global warming and climate change related issues are publicly discussed, the greater the public acceptance of recommendations of climate scientists. And so when we talk about basing policy on the science, on using that evidence, there is a really, really important interconnection between these policy narratives that we keep mentioning, which can sound a bit airy-fairy and a bit soft. Well, you know, what's a narrative? But they really, really matter. Those public discussions do then inform acceptance of science and acceptance of the policy that will support that science. So for me, we have an opportunity here with parties in charge that do take this very seriously. We have, I think, and hope definitely shifted into a space where, at least from the climate wars perspective, we're no longer debating whether or not climate change is, quote unquote, real. Uh, it is a thing. It is accepted. It is happening. And the question now for our policymakers is how do we address it effectively and how do we stoke this virtuous cycle between public discussion and then evidence-informed policy. 
Helen, you were, were talking there about the way in which fear is, is invoked and, and used as a political tool. And, of course, during the campaign, we saw that happening with some of the very alarm, alarmist claims about what might happen uh, with the election of independents and minor parties and the way in which that could lead to, to chaos in the parliament. Now, obviously, voters were closer to your analysis than that that we saw in from some of the major parties and, and in the mainstream media. As we're recording this pod today, um, it's not completely clear that Labor will hold government in the majority, but that's looking very likely. And I'm interested to hear from from each of you about what that might mean for, for policymaking. And you've both started to, to address this. Sarah, that kind of shift that you talk about with the public being much more engaged, looking to, to to evidence, to scientific evidence, looking to inform debate. Do you think we're we're going to see more of that because we have more diversity in the parliament and because we have both independents and and minor parties playing a different role? Now, how do you see all of that playing out, not just around climate change, where there's been a clear signal from the electorate, but more broadly across the the legislative and policymaking processes? Well, Sharon, I think you've hit on a real issue there in we're seeing a more diverse set, not just party-wise, but gender-wise, ethnic background, in terms of the politicians being elected. And so there is something happening around voters saying we want to be represented by people who represent us, who look more like we do as a voting public. And it does make a difference to see in Parliament people who reflect your own background, your own experience, your own gender. I think it is going to make a really big difference. If we look at some of the other major issues that need to be addressed in disability services, providing support for carers, um, work around the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the NDIS, young people are now facing one of the most difficult economic environments uh, in memory, as particularly those who are educated and now looking for work. And at the same time, we've got a number of major industries that are facing labour shortages at the same time that the government is looking to increase onshore manufacturing and reinvigorate particular industries. So you're right, there are a lot more industries, a lot more issues than climate change that need to be addressed. And I think what we're seeing in the formation of this next parliament is a greater diversity of representation that I would hope would then be reflected in the policies that are prioritised and in the policy solutions that are presented back to us. Helen, what's your assessment of of that diversity, that far greater diversity that we now see in in our parliament? Um, I think it can only be a good thing. Um, I mean, who'd have thought we would have uh, somebody who can speak 10 languages and was a dolphin trainer and, you know, before becoming a policeman as somebody representing um, an electorate. I mean, that is, that speaks so much of um, so much more is so much more connected to so many people's experience of of how they got to Australia, of what they've done since they've been in Australia. That can only be good. I mean, I think we sh- we shouldn't downplay, and I know that, that you haven't, but I, I really want to reinforce the the importance of women in this election and the way in which uh, women have um, you know stood up, organised. And, and won through in a, a wide, wide range of communities. And they're going to be very, very powerful. Now, some of them 
I think are going to find Parliament extraordinarily anachronistic. And that, again, um, I think will will hopefully um, lead to to some changes in the way in which politics is done, uh, because we all know from the experiences of of women um, who have worked in different ways in the Parliament that that has not been a safe workplace. But we also know that the way in which politics is done is not conducive to um, a a community that is more mature, more sophisticated, um, and much more diverse. So I think there could be some really fantastic things happening in the way in which parliamentary business is done, and I hope that that happens. But to your question about policy, which, again, I agree with Sarah, but I think what I'd want to add is in order to work with and work from an evidence base you need to have a public service that is equipped and you need to have a public service that is respected. And we have not seen that uh, over the, certainly over the last uh, three years. Um, you know, the role of the public service, yes, it is to serve the government of the day, but that does not break down into you just do what politicians tell you. And um, it, that that is a complete misrepresentation of what the public service role is. The public service role is to be the steward of the system. Helen, there's such important issues around the public service and I'd, I'd like to come back to those and really delve into them in a bit more detail because I think this is one of the really critical issues that we need to think about coming out of this election and, and reflecting on what the change of government means. But we might just take a short break now and come back and unpack some of those issues after the break. So listeners, please don't go away. We will be back with Helen Sullivan and Sarah Bice in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So, listeners, welcome back. It's such a refreshing conversation on the pod today, talking with optimism and hope for a different Australian government landscape after the Australian election just this weekend. In the victory speech, Anthony Albanese outlined two key principles of his government, and they were no one left behind because we should always look after the disadvantaged and the vulnerable, but also no one held back because we should always support aspiration and opportunity. For a long time in Australia, we think about policy perhaps more through a winner and loser model, uh, where people will obviously not, not go ahead or that people have some advantage. This framework really does suggest a different approach. I'd love to hear from both of you as to whether you think this is a new framework for governing and how the government can start to pursue this vision. Sarah, would you like to start? 
Thanks, Sonia Greta. Look, it is exciting to hear potentially a new shaping because in policy, uh, we always talk when we're talking with our students in class, we're always talking about, look, in policy, there's always winners and losers. And part of the role of the public service is to determine policy solutions that uh, hopefully are going to take that in consideration and have, if not the least uh, number of losers, you know, the, the least worse losers. And so moving towards no one left behind, no one held back. Uh, there's some excitement in that. And you can see it reflected in Anthony Albanese's personal background. Um, probably don't need to repeat here, but coming from a single parent household, growing up in public housing, he really has come through uh, as very much the iconic Aussie battler. And this no one left behind idea, no one held back, I think in many ways reflects that personal positioning and experience. I think it does potentially hold an opportunity to shift away from a winners and losers mentality, but I also think it's quite a complex dichotomy and it's one in which we have to be very careful because we could get into a situation where no one held back becomes, well, you're only held back because you haven't worked hard enough. And so in past policies where we've seen individualization, responsabilization, or mutual responsibility, uh, particularly around social welfare policies, this can become a real disenfranchisement uh, and challenge to those individuals who then are suddenly tasked with being responsible adults or citizen consumers in the case of the NDIS, as opposed to uh, public policy recipients. And so for me, the one thing I am concerned about with this particular spectrum uh, is that we do maintain support for no one left behind, and we don't get ourselves into a situation where we expect that everyone uh, is capable of being in the no one held back category. Helen, what what are your thoughts on on a shift towards a system where we're thinking that everybody might have some advantage? Yeah, and I I, I suppose what what intrigues me about that discourse is that um, you know we've always understood policy as being uh, as, as necessitating you know, a, a, a distribution of, of reward, if you like, um, that, that that will vary uh, depending on the issue and depending on the circumstances. Um, you know, it, it's relatively new in Australia that there's been this idea that, you know, any government can only make policy by saying that nobody loses. Um, you know, that was very much something that came in with John Howard and, and it's been incredibly difficult to, to shake. So, uh, again, just making these these statements, I think, is 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 very important as a signal to how uh, the government would like to lead policymaking. But make no mistake, uh, you know, the government faces an extraordinary challenge because we have a huge amount of debt. We are going into very, very uncertain economic times, and there will be, um, for all the optimism. Um, there is there are going to be some really really difficult decisions that are going to have to be made now the new the new treasurer jim chalmers you know is talking about trying to to extract more value from the the the, the debt that, that 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 we have in terms of you know how are we making use of of the, that money that that we borrowed and can we make it more productive and i i have no doubt that there will be many 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 difficult conversations in that area but there this I think along with the optimism, 
will have to come a, a recognition that things are not going to be fixed overnight and that some changes that, that the public quite rightly want are going to take a, a, a little bit of time. And then, of course, there will be areas where the government is still, I think, going to be reluctant to act because there hasn't been that shift in, in public discourse. But um, so I think there's, you know, this is something that's going to have to happen in stages. And one of the things, and again, I, I can come back to it, in order to to at least have a have a half a chance of making some wise policy decisions in this incredibly difficult area where you have no money, lots of injustice, lots of inequality, lots of people who quite rightly are, are wanting the world to be different. That's going to require some incredibly adept thinking, which is going to require some really, really, really smart public servants who are going to have to be allowed to speak their minds and not to be told that the only answer that is required is the one that uh, aligns very nicely with what the minister's already thinking. So, and that I think is, 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 is hard because we now operate in Australia in a system where secretaries of Commonwealth departments are appointed um, by the government of the day and that that has resulted you know, in necessarily in the politicization of the process. And so we have to really think about how do we get integrity and confidence back into the public service so that the, the excellent people who are there are able to do the work that they, they are, uh, they've been wanting to do, um, particularly people who work in the climate area, but not just them, but also so that the public service can be relied upon to provide the kind of advice in the kind of way that that enables deep and meaningful and productive conversations to happen. And that, again, sounds trite and naive, but it is what we want the public service to do when it comes to making policy. And we have to find a way um, of enabling that to happen. Um, there's, there's huge challenges there. Uh, you know, the, the, the shift away from consultants that... Um, the Labour Party have talked about is going to be, whether you think it's a good thing or not, it's going to be an incredibly difficult shift to make happen because now so much is done through consultants and institutions, you know, are very good at, at keeping hold of, of practices that they've got used to. So this is not going to be an easy thing to achieve. But if we don't try, if we don't actually look at the public service and say, how do we, how do we ensure that we have a public service that is actually able to and equipped to meet the, the public aspiration that has now been uh, voiced through the election, uh, then we really aren't going to get anywhere. So, you know, we've got, we've got the, the politicians with the views that we say that, 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 that we want as a country. Now we have to make sure that we've got the, the minds in the right place with the right uh, scope and freedom to be able to do the work that is going to generate the kind of policy we need. Helen, you've you've mapped out beautifully there what we've seen over recent years with a, a hollowing out of the public service, a shift to to increasing reliance on consultants. And we've also seen the previous government take a, a very, very hard line and very publicly against the public service. And of course, that kind of public criticism leaves its scars. And I recall in response to a question about ministers overruling departmental recommendations 
for the allocation of grant money. Uh, Former Prime Minister Morrison said, I don't think public servants sitting in Canberra have a better idea of what people need in their communities than their members of parliament who work in those communities every day. Now, they're very strong words for public servants to be hearing through the media and from their Prime Minister. Helen, what steps does the new government need to take in a very concrete way to start repairing some of the damage that's been done over recent years to the public sector, to the public service, and to to rebuild the relationship between government and public service, but, but to also rebuild and reconfirm the public service's role in our society, in our policymaking? Yeah, I, I don't think it's, I mean, I, I think it's a, a relatively straightforward prescription. I think it's a hard thing to, to institute. So this is going to be something that, you know, will take at least a parliament, if not, if not more, because we do have to overcome some of those really, really clever statements that were made by uh, the former prime minister and, and his colleagues. You know, they had a really excellent way of constructing the the argument so that um, people you know people were put into camps. You were either on the side of you know common sense or you were on the side of these people who sit in Canberra and and you know possibly don't know anything. So there's something here about affirming in the first place the role of the public service, and I think it's it's as important but as simple as that that the incoming government have to demonstrate that they are committed to the public service being capable but also being being feeling secure in being able to offer the advice in a way that may be challenging but ultimately will end up making better policy you also need to encourage people to come back into the public service um you know we uh, work in an environment where yeah we get to train public servants every day and it's an absolute privilege but we have to understand that you know, young people do have choices and the public service has to be a choice that they want to make. Um, and and that, you know, it, it's a choice between the public service where it looks like you're going to get verbally beaten up every day or going to work in the corporate sector or the not-for-profit sector, then, you know, it's, why wouldn't you uh, work elsewhere? And then I think there is a big job of work to do on actually equipping public servants with the the skills and the capabilities in sufficient uh, numbers so that they can actually do the work that is demanded of them. Because these are not easy jobs. These are policy problems uh, that have defeated us because they are really, really difficult policy problems. And so, um, you know, when again, we're not going to solve these overnight. Uh, so it's going to require some dedication. And that means um, a, a public service that, has the has the opportunity to engage with um, universities, consultants, you know, wherever the best advice is to be found, um, in order to support um, really, really good policy making. So I don't think the 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 prescription is a is a ne- is necessarily a a, you know, um, a difficult one, but implementing it will be difficult because it's going to require um, quite a lot of effort, quite a lot of um, uh, moving of resources because, again, you can't just expand the public service in, an, in a context of 
incredibly constrained resources. So we have to think creatively about where that capability can be found and how it can be used. Um, but without that, um, and also without, if I just, just one final thing, I think you, alongside that, you also have to have respect for the institutions that we say as a society are important to us to hold government to account. Now, whether that's you know, a federal ICAC, which apparently we're going to have, whether it's listening to auditors general who, um, you know, write reports that confront governments with some of the things that um, they shouldn't have done that they did do. These are these are important institutions, but uh, we we haven't taken them seriously over the last few years. We've decided that that they don't matter, and actually they do matter because without them, um, then we don't what we don't have. Uh, the framework of rules that everybody recognizes that we operate within. So this is more, this isn't just about preventing people doing bad things. It's actually about helping us create a culture of integrity that everybody really wants, but it's all gone a bit, um, uh, it's gone, it's, it's gone missing a little bit, I think, over the last few years. Helen, I think you might have just mapped one of the core first things for business for our new government uh, to create again a public culture, uh, public service where frank and fearless advice is the centre of what what is done, and it might bring us nicely into a conversation briefly about trust. Sarah, in April this year, you released a report, the Australian Perspective on Infrastructure National Survey, which had some pretty interesting findings around the issue of trust in government process. Do you think our new government will be able to regain trust in public process and genuinely engage with the community? I think if they follow some of the very sage advice that Helen has just given, yes, because that integrity and that trust in policymaking and also the regulation that sometimes goes along with policy is absolutely critical. So we looked at Australia's $292 billion infrastructure sector, the majority of which is being delivered through taxpayer funding and managed by our governments at state, territory and Commonwealth levels. And we found amongst Australians surveyed nationally, so in total, uh, we had approximately 5,000 respondents talking to us about their experiences and expectations for government delivery of infrastructure. And the number one factor, so four communities who are currently experiencing Australia's most intensive infrastructure build in history, the number one factor that shapes their acceptance of those projects and their trust in the, the developers responsible for delivering those projects is their trust in government. And that's followed, and we just talked about integrity and the ICAC and Auditor Generals, and I would also add to that Ombuds people. That's followed number two, transparency. And then they look for responsive feedback and the regulations that guide that particular major sector. So I think it's incredibly important that the government recognises that they're going to have to work hand in glove with an effective public service and one which they allow to operate uh, in an autonomous and professional way to really make the most of the skills that we do have within the Australian public service because it is genuinely a world-leading public service. We are the beneficiaries of some amazing policy minds. And if the politicians can work effectively uh, through the public service, then I think that is a ripe area for bu building and rebuilding trust in government. 
And that is then going to lead, at least in the sector of infrastructure, and I would expect in many other sectors, to greater public acceptance of policy, to greater trust, and we know that that then flows through to more successful policy implementation. This is a a conversation that I think we could continue for a very, very long time to come, Um, but we will need to begin to draw to a close. And I wanted to end by asking both of you about um, some of the gender politics that we have seen and that we will see into the future. Ahead of the election, Anthony Albanese talked about his desire to do politics differently. And perhaps nowhere is that need more urgent than in relation to the way women have been treated in Parliament. Now, quite clearly, women have taken this into their own hands. And we've seen this through the election result with the number of women that ran for election and the number of women that that have now been elected. And I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what this means. Will the changes that we need come simply through the weight of numbers with so many more women being in Parliament? Or does the government need to take specific steps to ensure that we, we change what has been a, a rather toxic environment for women within Parliament? Um, Sarah, would you perhaps like to, to give your thoughts on that first? Thanks, Sharon. The numbers are important. The numbers are a clear start. They give a mandate and also a prioritization to addressing gender inequity and also to addressing uh, a really diabolical culture that's been exposed within our parliament. But it's not enough. We need cultural change within the parliament. We need cultural change more broadly. We need to see policies that do reflect the public's desire for gender equity. And we've heard a lot about pay equity in particular in this election as one of the key issues. So what we're going to need to see now is genuine walking the walk. And we're going to need to see and have visible to the public in a transparent way the changes that are being instituted in the parliamentary culture and in parliamentary practice so that it's not just words on an internet page or in a podcast, uh, it is genuine change. And I think the numbers are there. They give us that head start, but we now have to see some action. Helen, can we bring this fantastic conversation to a close by hearing your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I completely agree with Sarah. And I suppose what, what, what I would add is that there's, We've 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 sort of dwelt in this land of um, miracles and presidential style politics for uh, for a wee while in Australia, and you know the consequences of of both the Labour version of this in former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, and now um, the the coalition version of this in uh, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been in, incredibly damaging in different ways, both to politics but also to the way in which. Uh, people view parliamentary process and, in fact, the you know just the practice of politics. So, um, while representation is important, I think the other thing that's that's really important is that the prime minister's approach to running government as being somebody who is, if you like, the first among equals. So it's not all about him; it is actually about him and an extremely able team. And the practice of something called cabinet government, which I don't know, when was the last time we we really saw that in practice? So that alongside 
some of the things that Sarah's mentioned that are more specifically about representation and what representation can do um, and the, the way in which some of the, the rules of Parliament might uh, actually find themselves changing as a result of people who with very different backgrounds coming in and experiencing a dysfunctional culture. Um, I think you also have alongside that the promise of genuinely, hopefully, uh, a a different style of making decisions, a different style of doing government. And, you know, uh, we have um, a front bench that is much more diverse than any front bench we've seen for a, a while, and that has got to be good. Helen, it's wonderful to end on that note of optimism, that that, that diversity has to be good. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you both for your reflections on where we've come from and and where we might go. I think it would be great to have you both back in a couple of months' time to see where we are tracking with this new government and with this sense of optimism for the future that so many people across the country now feel. But for now, thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been fantastic to have your insights. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Anna Greta. Great to have you with us, guys. Thank you. Sharon, that was an amazing conversation. We have not had a conversation filled with hope, compassion, optimism in such a long time. Uh, it is. It feels like we are in a totally new era for Australian policy. How did you find today's guests? Look, they're, they're both fantastic people to have talked through these issues with us. And like you, I feel that sense of hope and optimism And you could hear it in the way both Helen and Sarah were reflecting on the election results and thinking about the future. And I think we also see it reflected in some of the conversations that we're hearing around the place. People do feel as though perhaps a weight has been lifted and a new era has begun. And that's that's really exciting. And I think, you know, they they really did map out both the challenges that the new government faces, and of course those challenges are many, but also the opportunities. Anna Greta, there is one area though that that I just wanted to pick up on a little bit and Sarah made the point that, you know, in in new Prime Minister Albanese's comments about leaving no one behind an opportunity, it's very important that we don't see that morph into a narrative of continuing individualised blame for those who don't make the most of their opportunities or grasp opportunities. And I, I don't want to put any kind of downer on the the optimism that we're all feeling. But it does seem to me there is a slight disconnect between that language of no one being left behind and Anthony Albanese's own personal story, which he, he tells very often and which is a very powerful story. There's a disconnect between that and the ALP's decision not to review the current welfare system, not to review the level of of benefits that people of working age receive, despite the very widespread evidence that the current system, the current levels of benefits are holding people in poverty. Um, and I think this is a real litmus test. I think to, to me, Anthony Albanese's personal credibility about his backstory really hinges on how over the next couple of months, he and his government think about those issues of, of inequality that we see in Australia. And I really hope that the optimism we feel now extends to some changes in those areas. 
Yeah, look, I think that's a really important point to make. And I think if we just reflect on the conversations that we've had over the course of this year, 2022, uh, talking to policy experts across a range of different subjects, we can have some confidence, I think, early on that this government will contend with the issues of integrity and that the, the trajectory for climate action will be quite different, although potentially is going to require ongoing attention as we understand the science and, and appreciate the need for, for significant change. But some of the other issues are going to warrant ongoing attention and discussion, and particularly issues around social security and the way in which we can support and care for each other. But it's the narrative shift where, where I find the most hope. It's a change of language uh, toward language of compassion and caring um, and inclusion and a language where, where our politics may be less divisive and where there could potential for us to discuss complex issues that have historically divided us uh, really, really might bring us together. Um, and I'm particularly optimistic of that, of that, that change in strategy because of the crossbench and how large that is in our, what a large minority that is in our our Australian parliamentary landscape, um, and that the likelihood of them encouraging a different form of discussion seems high. So I'm, I'm maintaining my optimism at least for a little while. I think at this point, Anna Greta, we have to hang, hang on to optimism and, and language really matters. And I know, you know, I noticed Tanya Plibersek on a number of occasions used explicitly the language of care and compassion. And so I think there there is cause for optimism. Um, so I'm hopeful that we will have rather different conversations across the course of this year, but I'm sure those conversations will be as exciting and insightful as they have been over the past year. As robust, absolutely. Indeed. (laughs) Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications that we've mentioned in today's show there. You can also check out the new section on Policy Forum in Focus, Australia's Policy Future, which is now currently being edited by Sarah Bice. We are, of course, based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And if you're interested in our degree programs and short courses, you can find out much more information at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode, this episode of Hope and a New Era. Please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net, or you can join our Facebook group, which is called Policy Forum Pod. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.